Now, I have a new law firm, and the law firm which I have founded is incorporated under the name Scrambling, Rattle, and Bracing, Attorneys at Law. That's Scrambling, Rattled, and Bracing. Attorneys at Law. And this particular firm of Scrambling, Rattled, and Bracing is, uh, like all uh, uh, expressions of the law, an attempt to impose control over reality and some kind of order over an unruly and chaotic libidinal id of living. And this firm is uh, based on three uh, particular uh, partners. And I'd like to talk about the partners, uh, express to you what they do, because they're very au courant. They live currently in the headlines and all over the web, and they are doing all they can to control life. And like all embodiments and expressions of law as a function, they are unsuccessful in their attempts, although they are increasingly noisy, litigious, loud, and in the short term, successful. Now, first is the partner of this law firm known as Scrambling. Now, you'll immediately note, um, listeners to this podcast or newcomers to our happy crew, our merry crew, to uh, recall uh, John uh, Wayne's great line to uh, Jeffrey Hunter and the searchers as he uh, attempted to uh, carry sweet Meek, the Indian squaw who was treated so badly but who ended up doing such a lovely and uh, beautiful beau geste for the two as they sought the kidnapped uh, girl. Let's join this merry band and let's look at our friend Scrambling. Now, what uh, y'all immediately know, as I just said, was that this word scrambling is uh, an absolute giveaway to current modes of thinking in our world. Everybody is always scrambling. Now, scrambling is a word that it specifically refers to, usually it's how aircraft uh, on the ground uh, quickly um, jockey for position to take off uh, as quickly as possible when they're under attack. It's what our uh, our aircraft did not do uh, at Clark Field in the Philippines in connection with the uh, December 7th attacks in 1941. Scrambling is something that forever on, whenever there's a, a UFO uh, over Washington, um, and there was a very, very striking UFO uh, sighting in the 50s. But when there's a UFO, every... Uh, plane on the uh, Air Force Andrews Air Force Base scrambles to uh, quickly, uh, immediately respond to an incoming, incoming. Well, that's become now, my friend scrambling has become an absolute word that is used all over the place. People are always scrambling. Have you noticed the president's aides today were scrambling to respond to allegations that, or the uh, uh, the post office is scrambling to uh, find out what went wrong with a particular thing that was sent through the mail, or um, the, the Wall Street brokers today are scrambling to take in the news that there has been a change in the uh, status of uh, uh, Portuguese uh, debt ceilings. Uh, everybody is scrambling, and um, they're always scrambling to. They scramble to do such and such a thing. 
Now, my friend Scrambling is such a, a, a totally inept and frustrated, sad character because Scrambling means that you're trying your very best to to quickly do you do this, you do that, you do that, you do everybody. Hey, you do sell five, buy, merge, uh, merge and acquisition. You call you. Uh, everybody's scrambling to control incoming some form of data or some particular threat to the enterprise. So whenever you uh, hear the word or see the word written, and you'll see it on Yahoo and on the New York Times website about five times a day, uh, you'll see this uh, word scramble. Know that those who are doing the scrambling to accomplish some end are doing it out of uh, the uh, desperate, urgent need to control rather than assimilate or uh, watch for or calmly gather one's forces. They are chickens with their head cut off. Henny penny, the sky is falling. Everybody is scrambling in the old uh, children's story. The sky is falling. And so people scramble. And remember, scrambling is a futile, um, urgent, uh, short-term desire to control that which is feared. The great example of scrambling in ancient times uh, is the um, siege of Thebes during one of the Peloponnesian Wars, the later Peloponnesian Wars, where Diogenes the Cynic, who was one of my uh, heroes and uh, about whom I wrote a dissertation in college, Diogenes the Cynic, uh, when he saw all the people of uh, Thebes, I believe they were being attacked by the Athenian army, but it may have been Sparta. But in any event, everyone was uh, quickly, rapidly digging trenches and uh, uh, trying to fortify the hills and the sort of makeshift harem scarum walls outside of the Greek city of Thebes. And uh, as the Athenian, let's call it the Athenian army, approacheth, and Diogenes the Cynic suddenly took off his uh, his the great uh, uh, sort of wine barrel that that he lived in the sort of he he was naked except for a a barrel you know and he took it off himself lifted it over his shoulders and his head and started rolling it up and down a kind of a little earthwork and then letting it roll down and then he'd roll it back up again and then wait while it rolled down and then naked without even a loincloth he would run down and roll it up again and then let it roll back down and people immediately said Diogenes what in the world are you doing that is what that what is that crazy thing you were doing? And he said, oh, I'm just being like you. I'm, I'm just trying to defend Thebes. Now, what was he saying? Thebes was doomed. Diogenes and everybody knew that there was no way in a million years that the Thebans were going to, even with the great Epaminondas, uh, they uh, were not going to be able to win this one. So they were running around like chickens with their head cut off. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. And Diogenes simply watching them mimicked their futile and energetic and completely absurd scrambling to do this and that to save Thebes. And this is one of the greatest parodies of scrambling. So call me Diogenes, but when I talk to my friend Scrambling, who is one of the three senior partners of Scrambling, Rattled and Bracing, I know immediately that this kind of uh, control, it's a law impulse to control the threat. Uh, and when you scramble, you know that you are um, not succeeding because a, a thoughtful George Washington at Valley Forge, uh, a balanced and a reasoned and a careful and a strong response is not characterized by the panic which my friend Scrambling has to the very uh, absolute core of his being. Now I want to talk to you <clears throat> about my 
next friend, <clears throat> my other attorney, and I did attend law school, for those of you who care, um, and I really don't, but nonetheless, it, I did attend law school for three days, uh, but that's a story I'll tell another day. But I was an absolutely fully registered and uh, kosher uh, member of the um, uh, Harvard Law School class of 1975. Now, r my friend Rattle... He's another interesting character because he uh, represents, he is always shaken by external threats. This is another, he is now a, a, a word, a talismanic word that is used, again, all over. Read the New York Times website headlines, read the journal, read, read CNN, read... Uh, you name, uh, re, watch the news hour, you know, with Jim Lair, uh, look at Yahoo, look at all the sites, look at everything, and it's all over. It's one of these fashionable words, and it's rattled. We are rattled. Uh, people are constantly being rattled. Government spokesmen today reveal, were rattled by word that Turkey had done thus and so with thus, thus and so, or um, uh, members of this particular uh, uh, branch of government uh, were rattled by the admission that uh, the uh, certain group had done such and such. Um, the uh, leaders of the Diocese of Worcester and the Roman Catholic Church uh, have been clearly rattled by accusations that they... Uh, rattled is when you are, you're rattling, you're shaking, you are rattled by. Now, in the same way that my friend scrambling is scrambling in order to, they are scrambling to, my friend rattle is always being rattled by. I am rattled by an external threat. I'm shaking, I'm rattled. That means, <laughs> again, it's the people in Thebes. Have you been rattled recently? Well, I, I'm going to talk about the positive side of what you really, what, 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 what we're going to look at another way of, of, of living that is not the law of scrambling, rattled, and bracing. Uh, rattled. And um, people are being rattled all the time. What does that mean? Are they supposed to not be rattled? Uh, rattled means uh, as opposed to not being rattled. And rattled means th they're shakable. Anything that rattles has something inside it that goes, you know, has a little thing inside you, like that beautiful Christmas bell and that wonderful song, The Christmas Bell by. Oh, I think it's by uh, Hal David, Burt Backrack, that was originally sung by wonderful Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass on their Christmas album, which I love, but that's another story. The, the bell has the little rattle inside it that makes it click, click, like a children's thing, a little, uh, a little uh, acorn inside a, a ball. When you shake it, it rattles. That means something is insecure. Something has come loose. I'm, something inside me has become loose by the threat. I'm certainly the opposite of a, of a Lucretian atomist. I'm the opposite of a stoic, and I'm the opposite of a cynic when I get rattled, because it means that I have something that can be rattled. That particular information rattles me. You know, I got a call the other day, and I, 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 it disturbed me what this person said. I didn't want to talk to them, and then when they, they told me what they had to say, I felt rattled, I was, because something inside me was, is, is, was shaken. It wasn't sturdy. It wasn't attached. It, I mean, it wasn't attached in the sense of glued on. It wasn't... wasn't founded on a rock. It was rattled. So my friend uh, rattled is constantly being rattled by, and he doesn't have much of a foundation, and so he really is, uh, has to scramble. My friend rattled needs his, needs his, uh, his uh, colleague and partner scrambling. Now I come to the third of the three partners, 
The third is my friend, Mr. Bracing. Perhaps it's Ms. Bracing. It's a man or a woman. It makes no difference because there are women and men scrambling today. There are women and men who are rattled today. And there are women and men who are bracing. Now, <clears throat> my friend Bracing is always bracing for something. Uh, in other words, uh, he is constantly to be found on the uh, financial uh, pages of the journal or of the... Uh, I, I wish I could say the Providence Journal. My favorite newspaper, by the way, is the Providence, Rhode Island Journal, a wonderful independent voice of southern New England, a fabulous paper. But my friend Bracing is not to be found there. He's to be found at Yahoo, again, in New York Times, all over the Internet. And he's always being proactive. He is bracing for something. The markets today were bracing for news that the number of unemployment applications was up overall in um, Sierra Leone or in California. Uh, I am bracing. I am bracing. That means I am I'm steadying myself because I can't be steady in myself. I have to grab hold of something. Whenever I go on the, the shuttles between the, what they used, what they today called the land side and the air side of terminals, you know, these ridiculous uh, uh, constant bombardier airlines, I think they're called in, in uh, Pittsburgh or maybe it's in Orlando here, but you always are taking a, a uh, a, uh, uh, a shuttle, you know, from where you check in and you go through the hell of airport security, uh, which ought to be being toned down uh, now that Osama bin Laden is dead. But oh no, said the newspapers, we have to be more vigilant than ever now that our enemy in an undefeated war has been killed and assassinated. But uh, that's not another story. But but I go on these shuttles and I have no place to brace because there's you have to only you, only, you can only sit down at the end. And I don't like to take a, a you know someone, a pregnant woman or a little child place so I and I can't find a place to brace as I can in the subway in New York I can or in, even in the metro in Washington I can brace brace means when I'm I'm uh, expecting to be shaken and rattled before I scramble I have to brace so you know brace yourselves you know brace yourselves you're just about to be threatened brace you know I'm bracing for uh, the news that so in the same way that you'll always note with stock markets it always markets plunge on fears that stocks fall on fears that well markets brace for bad news that and then they're rattled because they're not no one in the market has a firm foundation everything is shifting all the time like the people in Thebes and there's always a bear fear b e a r and then immediately once you're rattled you scramble and of course <clears throat> scrambling is panic People who are scrambling or panic. Remember, you know, they're, you, you, you'd, you'd see it in the old television. It was a parody of the Wall Street investor who had three or four. Now it's done completely differently. But you'd have three or four phones. You know, he'd say to one person, sell, and one person, buy, and another person, uh, you know, short sell, and another person, do this. And, and uh, he was scrambling. And you said to yourself, oh, my gosh, what a life. And these people inevitably um, get dissed. Uh, they occasionally do well and they occasionally don't. But to be scrambling all day, well, uh, no wonder you you hate your job. Who wants to scramble all day? Maybe scramble an hour a week, max. But who wants to scramble all day? Do you? I mean, do you really want to scramble because you've been rattled and uh, you've been bracing for? Well, you can see that my three friends, scrambling, uh, rattled, and bracing, who have uh, partnered together to form this remarkable. There's actually a. Uh, you won't believe this, but there's a a billboard on the. Uh, 
on I-4 uh, when you get over near the airport, when you're on uh, the Florida's turnpike, as they now call it, getting ready to be near the Beeline Expressway and you pass over I-4, there's a huge billboard for the, the firm of scrambling rattled and bracing. It is the most amazing thing. So I'm not just telling you a story. This firm really exists. Now, what um, we learn, what I've learned from the futile and uh, inconsequential but all-absorbing, fretting, panic-mode efforts of my friend uh, Flicka, scrambling, rattled, and bracing, is that there's really another way. And really, the way to deal with opposition, the way to deal with threat, is to extinguish the threat by no longer siding with the ego who has to scramble, who is rattled, and who needs to brace herself or himself, but no longer deal with the ego, but admit defeat. That's the great, powerful truth of living, is not, and I might add, it is the core of historic New Testament Christianity, but it is sort of blown off by schools of thought which focus on all sorts of other far less um, essential uh, dimensions and passages and emphases which seem to be in the New Testament but are always subsidiary uh, and adjunct to the great one about the death of the old self and the birth of the new being. Whatever you may think of Paul Tillich, his book The New Being is a great book. And whatever you may think of Gurdjieff and all that sort of thing, and I'm not a follower of that world, uh, the talk about the the new being uh, was it touched a nerve. Whenever you talk about the true self versus this old, scrambling, rattled, and bracing self, you know from experience that you're on to something. And uh, the actual fact is the obstacle that is coming at you for which you are bracing, uh, by which you are rattled, and uh, 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 in order to defend yourself from your scrambling, this is in fact not the way to deal with it at all, but to see that the obstacle coming your way is inevitably your teacher and your and your negator. The very thing that has to scramble is rattled and is bracing, needs to be negated. That self uh, that is so deeply vulnerable and uh, which borrows my friend's services, uh, my law firm's friend's services, or my friend's law firm's services, that self is doomed to defeat and frustration and loss because it cannot be done. The ego finally cannot stand up to the threats against it from all sorts of forces, but historically from below, the id and the violent, sexualized, powerful personal forces that overtake you and destroy you, and the superego, which defeats and attacks. So really, instead of these obstacles and threats being that uh, uh, in relationship to which we are entirely attempting a futile supernumerary defense. I just wanted to use the word supernumerary. I've been wanting to use it all day. Um, I'm not even sure it's accurate for that context. Uh, but rather, the 
force coming against you, in particular death, is that which needs to be accepted. It is your teacher. It is the very thing through which and by which your ego can potentially be enfin and endless negated. And then you can actually uh, become the new being, which is not an egotistical, tiny, defended, uh, alien facehugger self, uh, but is the new being of the serene uh, touch with the one love, as uh, Bob Marley so touchingly sang it. Now, I'm going to tell you one other thing, and then I'm finished. You see this. I'm going to refer now to the last podcast I did, uh, which was episode 63. I'm going to refer to an episode of uh, One uh, Step uh, Beyond. And this particular episode was broadcast, and I have it here listed. Uh, it was entitled Vanishing Point. And this episode, which was part of season two of One Step Beyond, was broadcast on February 23rd, 1960. I feel it very possible that I saw it uh, when it, because a, a number of these uh, one saw at age nine. Uh, but now I see it, and it is a powerful, devastating, impossibly painful uh, uh, picture of what happens when one can no longer scramble, rattle any longer, and brace. And uh, in it, um, a character, her name, I believe, is Ruth Graham. Don't take anything more than that. That's, not, that, that's just the character in this 1960 episode of One Step Beyond, is talking to her husband. And by the way, John Newland actually plays a part. He actually plays a direct role in this astonishing 24-minute journey into hell and into truth and into hope. And he, uh, by the way, in an interview in 1960, I believe he said that One Step Beyond was in fact mentioned, uh, intended not to be a statement of despair, but of hope. One Step Beyond, by the way, is really like touched by an angel, but not uh, as uh, religious or nano angels. Uh, But it is uh, a form of a positive form of hope in most cases, but always uh, from the ground floor of acute human anguish. Now, in Vanishing Point, a a couple sort of in their mid-40s are in the middle of a fight. They're in a house which they rent in the country, somewhere in New England, and they're from Bridgeport, and there's a typical, the the actress who plays the wife, who's very, very good, has a a typical accent, which everybody thought they, until about 1970, um, young women actresses thought they had to sound sort of like Catherine Hepburn, trying to be preppy and sort of Fairfield County, Connecticut-ish, they sort of thought they had to sound sort of, I can, I can sound like a guy like that from a male point of view uh, in that world, but I can't do the, the, the woman's accent, but she's got a bit of that. But Tone, don't worry about that. She's, uh, she and her husband are having a terrible fight, and it's obviously uh, they've been having years and years of fight in this episode called a Vanishing Point. And she finally turns to him and very powerfully says, you know, I've lost hope. When you, when, after the, we've, t- today I was in this house and we just had a terrible fight and you'd gone off somewhere and I, I said, you know, I'm going to lose this. I want to die. I just don't want to live. I just want to give up myself. I just want to stop being a self. I want to stop living. I don't want to commit suicide, but I just want to stop. 
I just want to stop being a person who, who, can't, who can't win in these terrible fights. And she looks at her husband with tremendous pathos, and she sort of grabs his lapels, but in a tender way, and said, is there no, is there no way that we could, we, could, we could love each other the way we once did? Is there no way we could get beyond this? And he's very hard. He doesn't say anything, which would happen in a situation like this pastorally. He looks at her, and he can't say anything. He just is unable to give way. What he needs to say is, I am so sorry. Let's start over. You obviously still have it in your heart to start again. But she says, I, I don't. And she looks at him. Is there anything left? And he just says nothing. And then she says, oh, she said, I, I just think I'll, I'm just going to go inside the house. And she goes inside the house, closes the door, and disappears. He goes in after a little while of reflecting, and he sort of starts, you know, I think her name is Ruth. Ruth, Ruth. He goes throughout the whole house, and this is a set that they used a million times. He goes to the basement, goes through all the uh, sort of main receiving rooms on the uh, ground floor. Then he goes to the first floor upstairs, looks in all the places, goes into the attic, and he can't find her. She's disappeared. What's happened is she's come to an impasse. And the impasse states to her that I cannot win. I am completely defeated. And she disappears. She loses herself. Now, uh, the plot, he's then accused of murder because uh, uh, everybody knew that he was fighting with her all the time back in Bridgeport and here up in Maine or Maine, wherever it was. And uh, they're fighting and it's it's a lost call. And he's accused of murder. But they can't find the body. There's no corpus delicti. They cannot find the body. So he's... There's no case. Uh, he insists she's disappeared, and she has, um, but they can't find the body. And then he goes back, and he's, he hasn't shaved, and he's in a very bad state. He obviously feels guilty for having caused whatever has happened to her and uh, her complete defeat as a person. And he, uh, But there's a real metaphor here. He, he then suddenly comes down the stairs, and someone's knocking at the door. And there's a huge knocking, and a woman lets herself in while this knocking is going on. And this is a, complete, a woman dressed uh, in the clothing of someone about... About 18, uh, 1850, it turns out 1854, Agatha. And Agatha is anguished and she says, I will not come in. I can't believe that I was the teacher in this, in this town for 32 years and now I've been treated so badly and I'm just going to get in this house and I will, I will disappear. You'll never see me again. Well, it turns out that she was an abolitionist, and she was, this is, quote, always a true story, supposedly, and she was an abolitionist, but she was fired from, from the school board for being an abolitionist, from the teacher, the school uh, teacher in the town for being an abolitionist, and as uh, the narrator points out, and this is New England, you know, remember, uh, evil and uh, uh, on all, racial prejudice is not limited to any one part of the world or one part of the America in 1854, and even now, and it's 1854 in Maine or New Hampshire, and she's been let go because she's an abolitionist. And she says, I, and she's this look of anguish. I've been treated so terribly. I can't believe it. My life has come to this. I, I will never come out of the house again. And the banging on the door, you have to come out. We're going to come get you for your own good. And she says, I will not. Well, it turns out the guy who's been accused of murdering his wife goes to the library and he finds out that in the old newspapers of this little town, this woman disappeared. No one ever saw her again. And then he finds out that about 30 years earlier, the man who actually built the house in about 1825, it's an old, you know, sort of <clears throat> early 19th century frame house, he finds out that that man's wife had died in childbirth. The man who built the house for his wife built it himself. It's a lovely house in 1820 or so. 
know, our town. He'd built the house and his wife died in childbirth. And he went home after they buried the child and buried his wife and he locked the door and he said he was never going to come out again. His life was over and he disappeared. Now, obviously the house is swallowing. It's these poor, terrible people, sad people. But this is what you're saying, that they encountered, the, the man encountered an abyss of life, the, the abyss of the death of his wife and child. He, he couldn't scramble. I'm sure he wanted, he was rattled and I'm sure he wished he could have been bracing for the loss of his beautiful, and wife for whom he built this house and for whom he was living and their child. And none of those three uh, law partners of mine uh, were able to help him, and he disappeared. And then the woman who was, uh, lost her job because of her abolitionist sentiments, and I'm sure she was scrambling. She could have scrambled for work, and I'm sure she was very rattled and want to never go outside again after this terrible, terrible, horrible, shocking injustice of her treatment at work. And I'm sure she felt, I wish I'd been braced for that defeat and disappointment. But her ego is distorted and she disappeared. And now poor Ruth Graham, I'm sure she wishes she'd, she'd scrambled uh, when her marriage was coming apart. And I'm sure she wished she hadn't been so rattled by these endless spats and arguments and terrible, probably drunken, but whatever they were, attacks she suffered and the attacks she doled out from the hands of her husband. And I'm sure she wished before she got married that she'd been better braced for the kind of guy she married and probably not married him at all. But there it was. She wasn't braced. She was rattled and she couldn't scramble. And she's disappeared. And finally, and this is where it ends so beautifully, this is, you can see it. I think you can get it on YouTube. Vanishing Point. Short and sweet, and the camera, he's, he looks, he's, he hasn't shaved. The husband who's been accused of murder, he realizes that he anywhere he goes now, he will be have this shadow that he was, he was released because they had no evidence, but everyone will think that he committed murder. He didn't commit murder. He definitely sees he wants to join his wife. He clearly has done a terrible thing inside himself. He has, in the Sermon on the Mount sense, by being such a mean fellow, he's murdered his wife, but that's not said. What's said is, he said, I, I, my life is over. I can't get out of this. This is a, 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 a accusation I can't handle. I, I guess I'll just go upstairs. And he goes upstairs and he vanishes. And John Newland comes on and talks to the inspector, the policeman, uh, and they said, you know, we, we're going to demolish the house anyway because a road is going through here. And the workmen are taking out old furniture and uh, uh, the fellow vanished. Now, this is a metaphor for what this podcast is about. When you're faced with an impossible threat, call it anything you want to do, a member of your family, a fear, an obstacle, a terrible loss, a tremendous disappointment, personally, professionally, you name it, but it's probably going to be personal or professional in most cases. The death of something... It can be disease, it can be any kind of bad news. It can be a little email, and it can be a phone call, and it can be a letter. Uh, don't call 1-800-L-A-W-Y-E-R and talk to scrambling, rattle, and bracing. But follow the odd metaphor of vanishing point. Use this terrible obstacle and two-by-four as a chance for that which is susceptible to being rattled, that which can never brace itself enough to withstand the slings and arrows, and that which will tucker itself out with so much scrambling. Let that self vanish and fade in the way that Agatha in Vanishing Point, 
a poor teacher destroyed by her board of education for her noble sentiments. Let that ego come to its own vanishing point, and you will be amazed at the fellowship and the power and the universality and the um, strength of the new being who's lost the number for that other law firm. What was it again? I, I guess I better go out on, on the Florida's turnpike and what, what is this about again? What, I, you know, I don't even remember what this podcast is about. And find yourself in contact with the negation, which is ultimately the greatest affirmation of human existence. Thank you so very much, and God bless.